Welcome. You're listening to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. On today's episode, we're going to go deep inside contemporary world history as we examine the life of Winston Churchill and his connection to the small town of Fulton, Missouri. So the museum explores uh, the life of Winston Churchill, uh, but also puts into context his life and times. Uh, the museum was created in 1969. Um, it was created uh, as, a, as a little bit of a presidential library for British Prime Minister. Uh, and we have a collection of over 10,000 objects, uh, books, papers, speeches, original documents from President Truman, from Winston Churchill, uh, really do documenting uh, his life and legacy. Uh, we have also a permanent exhibition uh, of Winston Churchill, uh, his life, uh, to talk about his, his, his young life uh, from birth uh, to uh, the aristocracy of the 19th century. Uh, his father was Lord Randolph Churchill, his mother was a Brooklyn socialite uh, named Jenny Jerome. Uh, he was half American. Uh, and we, we trace his uh, early career from the 19th century. He was born in the reign of Queen Victoria, uh, at the height of the British Empire, uh, lived to be 90 years old in the 1960s. I like to say that he was born under Queen Victoria uh, and, and died under the current Queen Elizabeth II, which is extraordinary. Um, he was involved in the last uh, cavalry charge of the British Empire in the 1890s uh, and died as the British invasion were the Beatles. You know, it's an extraordinary time to live. Uh, and and Winston Churchill's entire life and career is really explored uh, in that context, in the permanent exhibition. You just heard from Timothy Riley, chief curator at America's National Churchill Museum, located in Fulton, Missouri. Timothy offered a brief backstory on the late prime minister, as well as on the Churchill Museum and what we can discover. Why, you might ask, would an American national museum dedicated to one of Britain's most iconic leaders find its home in Fulton, Missouri, a small town of 12,500 residents? To understand the answer to that question, it's important to experience and examine Churchill's activities and his role on the world stage during World War II. Timothy unpacks the story of Churchill's life between the two world wars that's on display as we walk through the Churchill Museum. Hence, the echo and sound effects in the background. What he's seeing on the horizon in the 1930s is what he called a gathering storm. A gathering storm we now know historically was the rise of Germany. Uh, and Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. Uh, and Churchill, early on, begins to warn the world that uh, even though this young, charismatic uh, leader is, is making great speeches in, in Germany, rallying the people, uh, Churchill has every belief that this man is trouble uh, and begins to warn his countrymen, his colleagues in Parliament, uh, in the House, uh, that uh, Britain must harm. You know, we must, we must stand up against Germany. Uh, and there was a more weary Britain, however. They still remember the legacy of World War I. They remember Churchill and the Dardanelles uh, and, and, and his, 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 his plans for war at the time that failed. And we're not trustful. Uh, instead, they said, we can work with this. We can, we can work through this. However, Churchill remains adamant 
throughout those, uh, those, 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 those years in the 1930s, as time went on and Hitler uh, began, be, uh, gained power uh, and, and began to expand his, his doctrines and his philosophies and his wicked ways, uh, Churchill at every turn warns, uh, but no one would listen, uh, or very few would listen, uh, including uh, Neville Chamberlain, uh, who was the prime minister, Famously, in 1938, at the end of the decade, goes to meet with Hitler, comes back to Britain uh, triumphantly, has a piece of paper signed by Hitler saying there'll be peace in our time. Uh, Churchill has none of it. He doesn't believe it. Uh, and we know that about a year later, uh, less than a year later, um, Germany uh, invades Poland, uh, triggering a treaty that brings Britain into the war and really begins the Second World War. That day, in September of 1939, when Germany uh, invaded Poland, Churchill is finally invited back into the cabinet. He resumes his position as first Lord of the Admiralty, the post he had held in the 19-teens, uh, and begins to uh, have a voice again, an active voice, uh, in, in world affairs. Uh, and that is September 1939, and by May of 1940, uh, as Britain is standing alone, uh, the Germans have now occupied much of Europe, are advancing quickly upon France, uh, Churchill becomes Prime Minister uh, in May of 1940, uh, a post he had coveted really all his life, and he said that everything prior to May of 1940 was, was a trial uh, and a, a test run for what he called uh, a period of him walking with destiny. He thought he was destined to be prime minister at a time when his country and the world arguably needed him most, and, and he does so. And we begin to see everything that he uh, talked about, his prescience, his early investments, his ambitions, uh, all come to, 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 uh, together in confluence in those early years in 1940. This is the chapter of Churchill's life that many know um, his steadfastness in the face of World War II adversity. Um, he suddenly becomes prime minister in May of 1940. Uh, within a few weeks, France falls. Uh, within a few weeks, uh, he is forced to evacuate uh, the British Expeditionary Force from the, from the beaches of Dunkirk uh, in, in a dramatic retreat uh, and, uh, and shore up his defenses uh, on the British Isle, all the while of chief concern that perhaps Hitler and the Germans are going to cross the Channel and invade Great Britain. Britain is really standing alone. Churchill himself has um, precious few resources. Uh, he knows he's out, outgunned in some ways. He's desperately trying to get the United States and President Roosevelt uh, engaged to come to their aid. Um, Edward R. Murrow, the great uh, American journalist, said that um, Churchill mobilized the English language and sent it into battle, not only through his great speeches from 1940, uh, his great broadcast, but also his correspondence with President Roosevelt uh, and the Americans to try to convince them uh, to, to lend aid at a time when was very much standing alone. Um, the Blitz, the, the great uh, Luftwaffe, the air sirens, as we hear in the galleries here, uh, start to resound over London, and the Germans nightly drop bombs uh, over London. Um, Londoners are, are huddled in the tube uh, to protect. Meanwhile, Churchill is on the streets examining the rubble, looking to the skies, uh, asking for help, and also giving hope and resolve to his people through his speeches and encouragement that they will withstand the, the, the German onslaught. Uh, and of course they do, after some difficulty and a lot of danger. 
as the months progress, we move into 1941, Pearl Harbor happens, uh, and President Roosevelt and the Americans are suddenly jolted into World War II. Uh, and at that point, uh, Churchill meets with Roosevelt uh, in December 1941, shortly after Pearl Harbor, at the White House for several weeks, uh, and they begin to formulate uh, a, a friendship uh, and an alliance uh, that will ultimately mobilize the United States to enter the war not only in the East, uh, with Japan, uh, but importantly uh, in Europe to secure freedom uh, for, for the countries that have been occupied uh, by, by, by the Nazi tyranny. So this is all an incredible uh, moment in history. Uh, and one that Churchill, I think, was well suited and perhaps uniquely suited to deal with because of his skill set, his education, his boldness, his resolve, his military acumen, but also his vision and his, 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 his ability to see the geopolitical landscape in all the pieces, knowing that he needed Roosevelt's help. Uh, and ultimately, he needed the Soviet's help. Uh, in 1943, uh, Soviet Russia uh, was engaged and became an ally. You know, and that's what happened. You know, the Americans uh, and the British uh, slowly, and, and after 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 Normandy, after uh, D-Day, uh, you know, moved towards Germany from 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 the from the west. Uh, Stalin and his forces and the Soviets closed the ring from the east. Uh, ultimately, coming into Berlin, and it's that alliance, the big three: Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt, um, together. Uh, win the war. Uh, it was really that alliance that helped help that. We have a great uh, artifact here in the museum, one of my favorites. Uh, it's a top hat, which we typically associate with Winston Churchill. Uh, but this one happens to be signed by Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin. Uh, and you can see the signatures on the hat. Uh, Stalin's signature is the one on the bottom. It's very fainted, uh, faded at this point. Uh, but these uh, three men met toward the end of the war, war in 1945. Uh, Roosevelt was in very poor health, uh, but they began to see the end. They knew that Germany would be defeated, and they began to talk uh, at the Yalta Conference uh, in 1945 uh, about how the post-war uh, uh, world would look. Uh, and um, this is where we begin to see some of uh, the foreshadowings of the Iron Curtain speech. Uh, Churchill knew at the time that Stalin, while a, a necessary ally during the Second World War, uh, needed it to defeat Hitler uh, was also um, bad news in his own right. Uh, and uh, the discussions at Yalta uh, were, were tense. Uh, and I think that some of the things that uh, Stalin agreed to do uh, at Yalta, he did not do uh, and foreshadowed what was happening um, in the Cold War. So in some ways, those conflicts really began at Yalta. You're listening to the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that illuminates our common humanity and uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Support World Footprints by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. This will help other like-minded and interested travelers find us. Also, Please join the World Footprints community by subscribing to our newsletter from worldfootprints.com. We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Winston Churchill. Here's more of our conversation with America's National Churchill Museum Chief Curator, Timothy Riley. 
The collection of America's National Churchill Museum contains more than 10,000 objects that tell the story of a life. So as we leave the gallery covering the Second World War, we move into a gallery that begins to connect the dots and answer the questions about why Churchill is being honored in Fulton, Missouri. We transitioned from the end of the Second World War uh, and VE Day. You know, in, in May of 1945, uh, Churchill was famously on the balcony giving the V for victory symbol, saying there's victory and this is your victory. This is the well, there's a general election a few months later uh, and it's Churchill's defeat. He loses that election uh, and uh, it's really on the heels of that election loss that he is given an invitation to Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri to give the John Finley Green Foundation lecture. Uh, and it's this, this document that's on display here uh, that Churchill receives. Um, this is a, a, a reproduction of a lot of the originals of the, the Churchill archives in Cambridge. Uh, but this is from our files, the, the copy of the letter that Westminster College in Fulton sent to Churchill uh, in 1945, uh, uh, in October, inviting him to come to, to, to Westminster. Now, it's, it's a very formal uh, academic letter saying we'd like to give you a lecture. And I'm convinced Churchill would have given this to a secretary and said, I can't possibly come, but thank them very much, except for the, the handwritten note on the bottom uh, in longhand says, this is a wonderful school in my home state, hope you can do it. If you come, I'll introduce you, Harry Truman. Uh, and when Harry Truman signs that and Churchill sees it, knowing he's, he's just lost an election, he's down, he's defeated, he has more to say, but if he's next to the President of the United States in the heartland of America, the world will tune in. And he accepts the invitation. He travels uh, to uh, the United States, uh, spends uh, several months, uh, the first two months of 1946 in Miami, uh, uh, a great place to be in January, he's a smart man, uh, and uh, reflects on the world order uh, and begins to see that the next threat uh, to democracy, to freedom, uh, is that of the Soviet Union. Uh, and it is expanding uh, Stalin and his, 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 his perhaps expansionist tendencies. Uh, and Churchill uh, makes the bold decision to hear in Fulton uh, from behind this lectern uh, up in a college gymnasium in front of 2,700 people uh, makes a speech that warms the world. Uh, he warns the world that an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Uh, and behind that line lie so many of the ancient states and capitals of Europe that are now under the Soviet communist control. And Churchill said, this is not good. Uh, and if we represent democratic values like freedom of election, freedom of speech, freedom to gather, uh, all of these title deeds of freedom, as Churchill said from behind this lectern, uh, we need to stand up to uh, the Soviet communism. Uh, and what Churchill said here at Westminster College uh, on May, March 5th, rather, 1946, um, outlined uh, what would become a blueprint, if you will, for how the West would ultimately, weigh, ultimately wage the Cold War, this ideological Cold War. Uh, the Iron Curtain uh, was a metaphor at the time. It had not been, the Berlin Wall had not been built. Uh, it does become a reality uh, and becomes a, a, a not only a, a metaphor, but a, a formidable barrier between East and West. Um, 
and uh, Churchill warns about it uh, here on this campus, and, and it really did change change the world. Uh, the speech at first was not well received, uh, especially in America. Once again, Churchill was seen perhaps by some as being a warmonger. After all, the Soviet Union had been our allies in World War II. The Soviet Union had, um, uh, the Russian people had lost millions of soldiers and sacrificed so many during the war. Uh, and, and here's Churchill saying they, they could be, once allies are now perhaps our, our enemy. Uh, so it was a, you know, the, the reaction to the speech was, was mixed, but Churchill once again is out front. You know, he's a visionary. He sees around the corner, if you will, uh, the geopolitical landscape and makes this bold warning. Um, and as we know, uh, as, as the events of, of, of 1946-47 unfold, um, the Berlin airlift is required, uh, the Truman Doctrine uh, that uh, Harry Truman introduces uh, in the U.S. Congress um, not long after 1946 um, lays the path for NATO, uh, and you know we begin to see that Churchill's warning is, is, is being accepted. You know, he said very, very importantly here in Fulton, you know, the last time I warned and no one would listen, referring to the 1930s when he saw Hitler, he said, certainly, ladies and gentlemen, we cannot let that happen again. And that was the purpose of his Iron Curtain speech, by coming to the heartland of America with the president at his side to make this bold warning. Uh, a warning that, alas, I think um, today, with the uh, current events happening uh, and new Russian aggression, um, that uh, the words that Churchill spoke 76 years ago um, seem hauntingly familiar. The many pages of Churchill's 55-minute famous Iron Curtain speech line the walls in another of the museum's galleries. And this is a story those pages tell. The title of the speech, The Sinews of Peace, that's the formal title, was not conceived until this very last minute. Uh, he added that uh, phrase. He, he, he knew what he had to say. He had a warning to make. Uh, he, 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 he sets up throughout the first part of the speech uh, for his American uh, and really world audience uh, that uh, the title deeds of freedom, uh, the freedom of speech, the freedom of uh, free elections was something that um, America and Britain, the Anglo-American alliance, value and have always valued. The special relationship that we now talk about, we continue to talk about, uh, was um, was made famous in this speech. You know, he referred to it uh, in this speech, and we continue to talk about the relationship between uh, Britain and America as a special relationship because we share those democratic values. Uh, and Churchill, once he sets that up as a preamble and convinces everyone that we have these shared values, uh, warns that there's an opposing force in, in, in communism that doesn't share those values. And that's really the you boil it down, mm -hmm. um, that's that's the Iron Curtain speech. It's his tension. And he called the speech the sinews of peace because he knew that those freedom-loving democracies uh, were sinews. You know, sinews are things that are, make us stronger. They bind us together. Uh, and the strength of our military alliance, he, he recognized that military alliances were part of this, especially in the wake of the Second World War, um, that if you didn't have some strength, peace would be threatened. Uh, and again, you know, boil the Iron Curtain speech down to its essence, that's the message. Alliances wow. matter, um, relationships matter uh, between uh, a democratic, with a capital D, uh, value-loving countries and nations and peoples. And it's an extraordinary, extraordinary document.
Of course we know that the Berlin Wall was built, Churchill's predictions came to pass, and the Cold War raged on beyond his death in 1965. But the artifacts in the Churchill Museum show that the story doesn't end with his death. By 1989, um, the mood in Europe is optimistic again. Uh, after the negotiations uh, between uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, mm -hmm. and the thawing of the Cold War, the relationship that, that, and goodwill that those leaders built, um, there is, in fact, uh, something that happens in 1989 that, that few uh, who live for most of the 20th century, the latter half, thought would happen, and that was the breaching of the Berlin Wall in November of 1989. That Iron Curtain, the concrete manifestation of it that Churchill warned about, was in fact built and in fact came down. Uh, and um, you know, that was a reminder that ultimately these, these title deeds of freedom that Churchill describes in his speech at Fulton uh, come to pass. And, and it's the democratic values uh, that, that, that come to be and tumble uh, and, and overcome the, the Soviet ideology. The impact that Churchill had on the world and the enormity of his Iron Curtain speech given at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, inspired the creation of the Churchill Museum that we now stand in and the stones that built it. A memorial and or museum uh, dedicated to Winston Churchill and Fulton started in the 1960s. Uh, Westminster College President Larry Davidson had a bold idea. Just like one of his predecessors said, let's invite Churchill here. He said, we need to do something to recognize this. This is the early 60s, 1961. The, the Berlin Wall was being built that year. Uh, and the Cold War was escalating. And everyone by now in the 1960s realized that the words were in fact um, something that needed to be reckoned with and paid attention to. So Westminster had uh, a bold idea to do something. And as you might imagine, they assembled committees. Uh, you know, let's do a plaque, let's do a sculpture, let's do a sundial, let's do a garden, you know, honor the speech. And finally said, well, let, let, maybe we should think bigger uh, and, and, and more boldly, like Churchill might have done. So the, uh, this magazine, it's a Life magazine from 1961, arrived. And the president of the college was reading it. And he was reading this article about these uh, old churches, uh, these Christopher Wren churches. Christopher Wren, the great architect who designed St. Paul's Cathedral, and so many other great British uh, masterpieces of, of architecture. Um, this article detailed those churches that were bombed in the Blitz in World War II, uh, destroyed in the great fires uh, of London in the Second World War, and frankly left abandoned. Right? The post-war economy in Britain was such that they couldn't, they struggled, they couldn't afford to rebuild them, they couldn't afford to take them down. So these great masterpieces of architecture were languishing in ruins. And this magazine, this Life magazine article detailed them, and suddenly, uh, it came to Frank, uh, rather President Davidson. Why don't we bring one to Fulton and rebuild it? What a great tribute, you know, to Churchill. This, 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 this icon of resilience of, of someone who got not, was knocked down and got back up. Uh, and so um, this, this, this idea uh, gained momentum. Um, 
President Davidson uh, was friendly with uh, President Kennedy, it served together in the Second World War, uh, and said, would you, you know, put your name behind this? Uh, Kennedy did. Uh, when Kennedy was assassinated in 63, President Johnson, uh, along with Harry Truman, who knew Churchill well, and Eisenhower, who knew Churchill well, uh, got on board, and they all got behind this effort to relocate from central London this ruined church called St. Mary the Virgin Aldermanbury by Christopher Wren, uh, and remove it stone by stone from London and rebuild it to Fulton. Now, Churchill himself was 88 years old. So he's an old, 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 old man, great senior statesman, knew about it. And in 1962, he wrote us a letter uh, saying that he would be honored uh, if, if, if we would, in fact, uh, do this by relocating the church from London to Fulton to commemorate uh, his speech on March 5th, 1946, uh, which he says uh, uh, exemplifies the ideals of the, the, the special relationships so well. Uh, and and he, he says he hopes that it will be a, a great symbol for the hopes and peace and the future of mankind. So this incredible, bold move to, to do this uh, becomes a reality. Uh, Churchill knew about it. He didn't leave to see, live to see the end of the project. Uh, we, we didn't finish uh, reestablishing the church and rebuilding it and opening it until 1969, four years after his death. Uh, but it is uh, an extraordinary symbol of resilience uh, that is, I think, fitting. The other stones that were brought to the Churchill Museum that sit on the ground here are sections of the Berlin Wall. We're very fortunate here to have uh, at the museum outside, you can get some good photographs of it, you know, a sculpture uh, comprised of eight sections of the original Berlin Wall. Uh, but this is, these are just eight sections stand up in a row. Um, an artist has, has carved this abstract uh, male and female figures uh, mm -hmm. out of the wall. Uh, and you can literally pass through or break through the barrier that once divided these two uh, worlds. And, and the, the sculpture is called Breakthrough. Uh, and it's a, it's a great reminder that uh, you know we can we can in fact um, through negotiation through uh, appropriate um, diplomacy and also some military strength along the way um, break through these these these, these barriers. Now, this sculpture was designed by Edwina Sands, who happens to be Winston Churchill's granddaughter. So uh, an extraordinary thing that as she was watching the Berlin Wall fall on television in 1989, she said, I have an idea. Uh, I need to place this sculpture uh, on the campus where my grandpapa gave the Iron Curtain speech. Uh, and she did. It was so interesting walking in the footsteps of history, uh, particularly Churchill history and the Churchill Museum. And really the creation of the museum is so interesting, having brought stones from England uh, to rebuild what was St. Paul's Church into the Churchill Museum here. And, you know, there's so many artifacts we saw, dear. We learned about his um, not-so-stellar academic standing <laughs> and, um, you know, his meteoric rise uh, to the First Lord of the Admiralty when he was a young MP, uh, which was the highest uh, civilian rank in the British Royal Navy, and then later as Prime Minister. Um, there's like a story and surprise around every corner. Well, the one thing about what you just shared is that his academic standing did not impact his stature and his uh, enormous impact on the shape of our world. Um, 
during uh, World War II and coming out of that. And uh, he had such a power with his words, with uh, the gravitas, and just with his command that just rallied confidence uh, in the British people and really Europe and America and the world to take on Hitler and to take on fascism and Nazism. And uh, there are those points in history where bold steps by one individual can really change the course of history, and certainly Churchill did. Right. And, uh, you know, he was an instinctual leader. He foreshadowed a lot of, uh, you know, the rise of dark powers, I'll say, in, in Europe. And, uh, you know, and his lessons, I think, still remain to this day. Lots of surprises. Indeed, lots of surprises. And one of the things, too, is that behind Churchill was a very strong woman, his wife, Clementine Hozier, who is integral to his career, but not a lot is known about her. She is really an extraordinary figure. Uh, she was also uh, from uh, an aristocratic family uh, of some sort, not uh, the granddaughter of a duke. Churchill was the grandson of the Duke of Marlborough, uh, but still very well placed, very well, uh, highly educated, uh, in some ways uh, more connected socially than, than Churchill as an individual was, uh, and, uh, and helped him a great deal throughout uh, his life. She was one of the few people uh, who knew every uh, foible, uh, every wart uh, that Churchill had. He could be irascible at times, uh, and she was one of the few people who could tell him so uh, and, and get through to him. And uh, I think you know, her, her vision and her support was extraordinary for Winston Churchill from 1908 onward. He once said uh, that uh, the best decision and most, most brilliant achievement was convincing his wife to marry him. And I think there's truth to that. There is so, so much more to share, but you'll just have to visit the Churchill Museum to experience a more complete history of Winston Churchill. Until then, we'll reflect on the words of Churchill himself. Courage is what it takes to stand up and speak. It is also what it takes to sit down and listen. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're so happy that you're here. It would really mean a lot to us if you would leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd love for you to join our community, so please subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter from our website, at worldfootprints.com. Our newsletter is full of travel news, tips, and resources, including our favorite links. Thank you again for your support and for giving us the space to share the world through the stories we offer on World Footprints. Until next time, be kind to each other. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints, LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.